Section 6 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, The Reformation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lewis Heman, Louisville, Kentucky. Chapter 2. Habsburg and Valois, 1. By Stanley Leiths. Part 1. The secular struggle between the houses of Burgundy and Valois reaches a new stage in the era of the Reformation. The murder of the Duke of Orléans in the streets of Paris in 1407 involved at first only a junior branch of the French royal house in the blood feud with Burgundy. The alliance of Orléans and Armagnac in 1410, and of both with Charles the Dauphin in 1418, swept in the senior branch, and led to the retributive murder of John of Burgundy in Montereau in 1419. Steadily, the area of infection widens. A relentless ate dominates all the early years of Philip the Good, and then, laid for a while to sleep at Arras, 1435, reappears in the days of Charles the Bold. Not only political and national aims, but an hereditary dynastic hatred might have inspired Louis XI in his campaigns of war and intrigue until the crushing blow at Nancy. The grandson of Charles the Bold, Philip the Fair, seemed, in his jealousy of Ferdinand and his devotion to the interests of the Netherlands, to have forgotten the ancestral feud. But his son and heir, whom we know best as Charles V, inherited, together with the inconsequent rivalries of Maximilian, and the more enduring and successful antagonism of Ferdinand, the old Burgundian duty of revenge. Thus the chronic hostility between the kings of Valois-Angoulême and the united line of Burgundy, Austria, Castile, and Aragon has a dramatic touch of predestined doom, which might find a fitting counterpart in a Norse saga or the Nibelungen lead. But greater forces than hereditary hate drove Europe to the gulf in which the joy of the Renaissance was forever extinguished. The territorial consolidation of the previous age in Europe, though striking, had been incomplete. The union of the French and Spanish kingdoms had gone on natural lines, but Italy had been less fortunate. At the death of Ferdinand, her fate was still uncertain. The Spaniards stood firm in Sicily and Naples. The French seemed to stand secure in Milan. Venice had withstood the shock of a united Europe. Florence seemed strengthened by the personal protection of the Holy Father. But so long as two rival foreign powers held their ground in Italy, consolidation had gone too far or not far enough. Italy must be either Italian or Spanish or French. The equilibrium was unstable. No amicable agreement could permanently preserve the status quo. The issue could only be solved by the arbitrament of arms. In Germany, the case was different. There, consolidation seemed to be out of the question. Neither the preponderance of any single power, nor that of any combination of powers, held out hopes of successful conquest and the German nation, inured to arms, could offer a very different resistance to that which any of the Italian states could maintain. 
Thus, the history of Europe in this period falls into two well-marked sections. The Teutonic lands work out their own development under the influence of the new religious thought, unaffected as a whole by the competition for supremacy in Europe. They had their own dangers from the Turk and in civil strife. But the struggle, although ostensibly between the emperor and the king of France, was in reality between Spain and France for hegemony in Western Europe, supremacy in Italy. The struggle was dynastic, but dynasties are the threads about which nations crystallize. At the outset, the forces were not ill-matched. On the death of Ferdinand in 1516, the Archduke Charles, succeeded by hereditary right to the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon and their dependencies, to the kingdoms of the two Sicilies, to the Franche-Comte of Burgundy, and to the provinces of the Netherlands. On the death of Maximilian in 1519, he added to these the Habsburg inheritance in Eastern Europe, which he wisely resigned before long to his brother Ferdinand. For soldiers, he could rely on his Spanish dominions, on the regular forces organized by Charles the Bold in the Netherlands, on the less trustworthy levies of Germany and Italy. The Netherlands and Spain gave him a considerable revenue, which exceeded and grossed the revenue of the French king, but was not equally available for common dynastic purposes, owing to the difficulty of exporting and transporting treasure, and the cogent necessities of internal government. The Sicilies might pay for their own government, and provide an occasional supplement, but the resources of these kingdoms hardly compensated for the needs of their defense. The maritime resources of Spain were considerable, but ill-organized, and therefore not readily available. The French king, on the other hand, though his dominions were less extensive, had manifest advantages both for attack and defense. His territory was compact, and almost all capacity for internal resistance had been crushed out by the vigorous policy of Louis XI and Anne of Beaujeu. His subjects were rich and flourishing, and far more industrious than those of Spain. All their resources were absolutely at his control. Even the clergy could be relied upon for ample subsidies. His financial system was superior to that of any existing state. He could make such laws and impose such taxes as suited his sovereign pleasure. Since the Concordat of 1516, all important clerical patronage was in his hands, and the great ecclesiastical revenues served him as a convenient means for rewarding ministers and attaching to himself the great families whose cadets were greedy of spiritual promotion. His cavalry and artillery were excellent and well organized. His infantry had not yet been satisfactorily developed, but his resources permitted him to engage mercenaries, and Germans and Swiss were still ready to serve the highest bidder. In defense, he could fight upon interior lines. For attack, he had a ready road to Italy through the friendly territories of Savoy. The possession of Milan secured to him the maritime power of Genoa, a very valuable addition to his own. In character, the two potentates were less equally matched. Francis was bold and vigorous upon occasion, but inconsequent in action. His choice of men was directed by favoritism. His attention was diverted from business by the pursuit of every kind of pleasure, the more as well as the less refined. His extravagance was such as to hamper his public activity. 
To the last, he never showed any increasing sense of royal responsibility, and preserved in premature old age the frivolous and vicious habits of his youth. At the death of Ferdinand, Charles was still a boy, and, until the death of Guillaume de Croix, Sire de Chievre, 1521, his own individuality did not make itself clearly felt. Chievre, his old tutor, now his principal minister, dominated his action. Yet at the election to the empire, it was his own pertinacity that secured for him the victory when others would have been content to obtain the prize for his brother Ferdinand. Throughout his life, this preeminent trait of manly perseverance marks him with a certain stamp of greatness. Slow in action, deliberate in counsel to the point of irresolution, he yet pursued his ends with unfailing obstinacy until by sheer endurance he prevailed. Extreme tenacity in the maintenance of his just rights, moderation in victory, and abstinence from all chimerical enterprise are the other qualities to which he owes such success as he obtained. Fortune served him well on more than one conspicuous occasion, but he merited her favors by indefatigable patience, and he never made on her exorbitant demands. Of his two grandfathers, he resembles Ferdinand far more than Maximilian. In the course of his career, these characteristics were developed and became more notable. Unlike his rival, he learnt from life, but from his youth he was serious, persistent, sober. In his choice of ministers and judgment of men, he showed himself greatly superior to Francis. He was well served throughout his life, and never allowed a minister to become his master. Unsympathetic, unimaginative, he lacked the endearing graces of a popular sovereign. He lacked the gifts that achieve greatness. But, born to greatness, he maintained unimpaired the heritage he had received. And at whatever price of personal and natural exhaustion, he left the House of Habsburg greater than he had found it. When we consider the ineluctable burden of his several and discreet realms, the perplexing and multivarious dangers to which he was exposed, the mere mechanical friction occasioned by distance and boundaries and intervening hostile lands, the inefficient organization, political, financial, and military, of his countries at that time, the obstacles opposed by institutions guarding extinct and impossible local privilege, the world-shaking problems which broke up all previous settled order, then the conscientious sincerity with which he addressed his mediocre talents to the allotted work must earn for him at least a place in our esteem. On neither side was the struggle for world empire. Charles would have been content to recover Milan in self-defense, and the Duchy of Burgundy as his hereditary and indefeasible right. France had good grounds for claiming Milan and Naples, but it is doubtful whether Francis would have been as moderate after victory as Charles. The struggle can be considered apart from developments in Germany but it has its reaction on German fortunes. Had Charles not been hampered throughout his career by the contest with France, he would not have been forced to temporize with the reforming movement until it was too late for effective action. The most Christian king was an unconscious ally of Luther, as he was a deliberate ally of the Turk. Immediately, the conflict concerned the fate of Italy. Indirectly, it weakened the resistance of Europe to the reformed opinions, 
and to the Muslim in Eastern Europe and the Mediterranean. After Marignano, 1515, and at the Peace of Noyon, 1516, which professed to shelve all outstanding questions and secure perpetual friendship between Spain and France, Europe had peace for a while. It was arranged at Noyon that Charles should take Louise, the daughter of the King of France, to wife, and that the rights of the Kingdom of Naples should go with her. Until this babe in arms should become his wife, Charles was to pay 100,000 crowns a year as rent for Naples, and 50,000 until she bore him a son. If Louise died, some daughter of a later birth was to be substituted as his affianced bride, and this clause actually took effect. Charles promised satisfaction with regard to Spanish Navarre, conquered by Ferdinand in 1512. Perhaps he even secretly engaged himself to resort to Catherine, its lawful queen, within six months. The treaty was concluded under the influence of Flemish councillors, who had surrounded Charles since he had taken up the government of the Netherlands in the previous year. It was inspired by a desire for peace with France in interests exclusively Burgundian. But it had also its value for Spain, for it gave Charles a breathing space in which to settle the affairs of his new kingdoms. Maximilian, now in isolation, was forced to come to terms with France and Venice and surrender Verona, and peace was secured in Italy for a while. At a subsequent conference at Cambrai in 1517, the partition of Italy between Habsburg and Valois was discussed, but nothing was definitely settled. English diplomatists looked on askance at the apparent reconciliation, but their hopes of fishing in troubled waters were soon revived. Charles utilized the respite for his visit to Spain in 1517. While here, he was not only occupied with the troublesome affairs of his new kingdoms, but with the question of the empire. Maximilian, who, although not yet sixty years of age, was worn out by his tumultuous life, was anxious to secure the succession to his grandson. At the Diet of Augsburg, 1518, he received the promise of the electors of Mainz, Cologne, the Palatinate, Brandenburg, and Bohemia for the election of Charles as Roman king. The French king was already in the field, but the promises and influence of Maximilian, and the money which Charles was able to supply, overbore for the moment this powerful antagonism. On the receipt of this news, Pope Leo X, who had already been attracted to the side of France, was seriously alarmed. The union of the imperial power with the throne of Naples was contrary to the time-honored doctrines of papal policy. Thenceforward, he declared himself more openly a supporter of the French claims. Meanwhile, if Charles was to be elected before Maximilian's death, the latter must first receive from the pope the imperial crown. This Leo refused to facilitate. In all this, the Pope showed himself as ever more mindful of the temporal interests of the Roman See and of his own dynastic prophet than of the good of Europe or religion. Both in the coming struggle with victorious Islam and against the impending religious danger, an intimate alliance with Charles was of far more value than the support of France. But the meaner motives prevailed. On January 19, 1519, Maximilian died, and the struggle broke out in a new form. 
The promises of the electors proved to be of no account. All had to be done over again. The zeal of his agents, his more abundant supplies of ready cash, the support of the Pope, at first gave Francis the advantage. Troubles broke out in the Austrian dominions. Things looked black in Spain. Even the wise Margaret of Savoy lost hope, and recommended that Ferdinand should be put forward in place of Charles. Charles showed himself more resolute and a better judge of the situation. He had friends in Germany, Germans who understood German politics better than the emissaries of Francis. The influence of England on either side was discounted by Henry VIII's own candidature. German opinion was decidedly in favor of a German election, and although Charles was by birth, education, and sympathy a Netherlander, yet the interests of his house in Germany were important, and it may not have been generally known how little German were his predilections. The great house of Fugger came courageously to his aid, and advanced no less than 500,000 florins. The advantage of this support lay not only in the sum supplied, but in the preference of the electors for Augsburg bills. The elector of Mainz refused to accept any paper other than the obligations of well-known German merchants. At the critical moment, Francis could not get credit. The Swabian League forbade the merchants of Augsburg to accept his bills. He endeavored in vain to raise money in Genoa and in Lyon. It is needless to pursue the base intrigues and turkiversations of the several electors. The elector of Saxony played the most honorable part, for he refused to be a candidate himself, and declined all personal gratification. The elector of Mainz showed himself perhaps the most greedy and unfaithful. He received 100,000 florins from Charles alone, and the promise of a pension of 10,000, which it is satisfactory to note was not regularly paid. Money on the one hand, and popular pressure on the other, decided the issue. The Rhinelands, where the possessions of four electors lay, and where the election was to take place, were enthusiastic for the Habsburg candidature. It was here that the national idea was strongest, and the humanists were eloquent in their support of Maximilian's grandson. The army of the Swabian League, under Franz von Sickingen, the great German condottiere, was ready to act on behalf of Charles. It had been recently engaged in evicting the Duke Ulrich of Württemberg from his dominions, and was now secured by Charles for three months for his own service. Here also money had its value. Sickingen and the Swabian League received 171,000 florins. At the end, the Pope gave way and withdrew his opposition. On June 28, 1519, the electors at Frankfurt voted unanimously for the election of Charles. The election cost him 850,000 florins. It is a commonplace of historians to exclaim at the fruitless waste of energy involved in this electoral struggle, and to point out that Charles was not richer or more powerful as emperor than he was before, while on the other hand his obligations and anxieties were considerably increased. But so long as prestige plays its part in human affairs, so long a reasonable judgment will justify the ambition of Charles. He was still, perhaps, in the youthful frame of mind 
which willingly and ignorantly courts responsibility and faces risks. The frame of mind in which he entered on his first war with Francis, saying, quote, Soon he will be a poor king, or I shall be a poor emperor. End quote. But the imperial crown was in some sort hereditary in his race. Had he pusillanimously refused it, his prestige must have suffered greatly. As a German prince, he could not brook the interference of a foreign and a hostile power in the affairs of Germany. The imperial contest was inevitable, and was, in fact, the peaceful overture to another contest, equally inevitable and more enduring, waged over half a continent through nearly forty years. War was, in fact, inevitable, and Charles was ill-prepared to meet it. His affairs in Spain went slowly, and it was not until May 1520 that Charles was able to sail for the north, leaving open revolt at Valencia and discontent in his other dominions. The fortunate issue of these complications has been related in the first volume of this history. Diplomacy had already paved the way for an understanding with Henry VIII, which took more promising shape at Gravelines, after a visit to Henry at Dover and Canterbury, and the famous interview of Henry VIII and Francis I at the Field of the Cloth of Gold. Wolsey's skillful diplomacy had brought it about that both the greatest monarchs of Europe were bidding eagerly for his and his master's favor. A pension and a bishopric for the cardinal, a renewal for England of the commercial treaty with the Netherlands, were the preliminary price. At Gravelines, it was agreed that Charles and Henry should have the same friends and the same enemies, and that neither power should conclude an alliance with any other without the consent of both. If war broke out between Charles and Francis, Henry was to act against the aggressor. For two years, the agreements for the marriage of the Dauphin with the English Princess Mary and of Charles with Charlotte, the daughter of Francis, Louise having died, were to receive no further confirmation. Towards the end of this period, another meeting was to take place, at which another agreement should be concluded. Each power was to maintain a regular ambassador at the court of the other. The pains taken by Wolsey to reassure Francis and to show that Henry had rejected propositions from Charles for a joint attack on France, proved that he was still anxious to prevent the Roman king from drawing near to France. But the net result of the interviews was to guarantee Charles against any immediate adhesion of England to his rival. Fortified by this belief, and leaving his Aunt Margaret of Savoy to govern the Netherlands with extensive powers, Charles proceeded to his coronation, which took place at Aiken on October 23, 1520. Meanwhile, in Castile and Valencia, the troubles continued, until the rising of the Comuneras was definitely crushed at the Battle of Villalar, April 24, 1521. Charles was thus relieved from one of his worst anxieties, though the condition of his finances was so bad that he could only look with alarm on the prospect of war. All his Spanish revenues were pledged, and nothing could be expected from that source. Still, the outbreak of war was delayed, and he was able to bring the Diet of Worms to a close before any decisive step was needed. And more important still, in the eager hunt for alliances on both sides, Charles proved the more successful. On May 29, 1521, 
a secret alliance had been concluded on his behalf with the Pope. From the time of the imperial election, Leo had foreseen the consequences, and had turned his shallow statecraft to the task of considering what could be got for the papal see and his own family from the impending war. At first, he had urged a prompt and united attack upon Charles, in which France, Venice, and England were to join. This might well have succeeded while Charles was still embroiled in Castile. Then, while negotiations with France and England flagged, and each power was maneuvering for the weather gauge, Leo began to see that France and Venice could never consent to his favorite scheme for the annexation of Ferrera, the one part of Julius's design which yet remained unexecuted. France was closely linked with Alfonso d'Este, and Venice preferred him as a neighbor to the Pope. Then Leo turned to Charles, and Charles was ready to promise all that he could ask. Parma, Piacenza, Ferrara, imperial protection for the Medici, the restoration of Francesco Sforza in Milan and the Adorni in Genoa, and the suppression of the enemies of the Catholic faith. In return, the Pope promised the investiture of Naples and a defensive alliance. Leo would have been glad to make the alliance offensive, but the Emperor was in no hurry for war, and still hoped that it might be averted. The alliance with Leo was valuable to Charles for the resources, material and spiritual, which the Pope and the Medici controlled, for the protection which the Papal States afforded against attacks on Naples from the north, and for the access they gave to Lombardy from the south. Still more valuable appeared the alliance with England, as securing the Netherlands against a joint attack. Wolsey, at first, was anxious to play the part of mediator or arbitrator between the hostile powers. At length, at Bruges, the agreement was reached on August 25th. Chiev was dead May 18, 1521, and Charles took himself the leading part in these negotiations. Charles was to marry Mary, the daughter of Henry VIII. The emperor and king entered the most solemn alliance not only for the defense of their present possessions, but for the recovery of all that they could severally claim. The emperor, who was mediating a visit to Spain, was to visit England on the way. War was to be openly declared in March 1523. But if no suspension of hostilities came between Charles and France, the declaration of war was to take place on the occasion of Charles's visit to England. All this was to be secured by the most solemn and public declarations within four months. The Treaty of Alliance, solemn as it professed to be, left something to be desired. France was already effectively at war with Charles. Robert de la Marck, Lord of Bouillon and Sedan, earlier in the year had invaded the southern Netherlands, and Duke Charles of Gelders, an old ally of France and enemy of the Burgundian rulers, had attacked the north. Henri d'Albret had marched into Navarre, and at first had met with considerable success. These attacks were manifestly supported by France, and Charles could therefore claim the aid of England by virtue of earlier treatises as the victim of unprovoked aggression. But for the time being, it must suffice that England was neutralized. In the border warfare which succeeded, Charles could hold his own. Sikigan chastised the Lord of Bouillon. Henri d'Albret was driven from Navarre by local levies, 
And although on the frontier of the Netherlands things looked black for a while, though Mezières under Bayard held out against attack, and the Emperor himself risked a serious defeat near Valenciennes, though the Admiral Bonnivet succeeded in occupying Fuentarabia, the most important position on the Western Pyrenees, all was compensated, and more than compensated, by the seizure of Milan on November 19, 1521, by the joint forces of the Emperor and the Pope. Lombardy, with the exception of a few fortresses, was easily occupied, and in the north Tournai capitulated. After these astonishing successes, the death of Leo on December 1st came as an unexpected blow to the imperial hopes. But his aid had done its work. His support had been the chief instrument in preventing the Swiss from assisting Francis with their full force. Papal and Florentine money had supplied the needs of the joint expedition. In return, he received before his death the news that Parma and Piacenza had been recovered for the Holy See. The campaign in Lombardy had been conducted by Prospero Colonna in command of the papal and imperial forces, among which were 16,000 German infantry brought by way of Trent. The French army was commanded by Odet de Foix, Vicomte de Lautre, who owed his position to his sister's favor with the French king. They were joined by a considerable contingent from Venice. The Spanish troops under Antonio de Leva and the Marquis of Pescara came up slowly from Naples. Operations began badly. No plan of campaign commanded approval. And when at length the siege of Parma was undertaken, it had to be abandoned owing to danger from Ferrara. In October, however, on the news of the approach of a body of Swiss whom the Pope had induced to serve for the protection of the Holy See, Colonna crossed the Po. Giovanni de' Medici defeated a Venetian force, and the Marquis of Ferrara suffered a defeat. Lautre failed to prevent the junction of Colonna with the Swiss. There were now Swiss in both armies, and the orders of the Swiss Diet came to both armies that they were to return. But the papal contingent held firm, while those in the pay of the French deserted in great numbers. Colonna forced the passage of the Otto, and Lautre retired on Milan, where the exactions and repressive measures of the French provoked a gibbling rising as soon as the enemy appeared before the walls. The Venetians led the flight, and Lautre abandoned the city for Como, whence he passed to winter in the Venetian territory. The strange election of Adrian of Utrecht to the papal throne, which followed on the death of Leo, appeared at first to favor the imperial side. Adrian had been the emperor's tutor, and was left by him as regent in Castile in 1520. But Adrian's visionary and unworldly character unfitted him to take the traditional part of the popes in Italian politics. It was long before he appeared in Italy, and after his arrival, he long endeavored to maintain neutrality. At last, about a month before his death, in September 1523, Adrian was forced to take a side and joined the emperor. The news of the successes in Lombardy put an end to the exertions of Wolsey to conclude an armistice between the powers and to secure his own acceptance as arbitrator. The alliance with England was confirmed, and Charles was free to sail for Spain, May 26, 1522. On his way, he landed at Dover and visited Henry, 
and on June 19th, the Treaty of Windsor was concluded, according to which both sovereigns were bound to invade France, each with a force of 30,000 foot and 10,000 horse. The date named for this great effort was May 1524. In July 1522, Charles reached Spain, and the last remnants of rebellion were stamped out. Meanwhile, his armies in Italy had been left almost to their own resources. The ample supplies voted by the Netherlands in 1521 had been all expanded in the war of that year. No more money was forthcoming from the Pope or Florence. A great part of the imperial army had to be disbanded. The death of Leo threw the Swiss entirely onto the side of France. The French king, moreover, found no more difficulty in hiring German Landsknechte than did the emperor himself. In the papal state, the forces of disorder reigned unchecked, and the old tyrants appeared in Urbino, Camerino, Rimini, and Perugia. Early in March 1522, Lautre moved across the Adda to join the Swiss, who were coming to the number of 16,000 from the passes of the Alps. The junction was effected at Monza. But the defensive works of Colonna, executed during the winter, rendered Milan impregnable to assault. The enthusiastic support of the Milanese provided garrisons for the principal towns of that duchy. Francesco Sforza entered Milan on the 4th of April, and the Milanese were now fighting for a duke of their own. Lautrec, although reinforced by a French force under his brother, Thomas de Lascun, could achieve nothing against the defensive strategy of Colonna. At length, the impatience of the Swiss, who demanded battle or pay, forced the French to attack the enemy in a strong position of their own choosing, called the Bicaca, three miles from Milan, April 27th. Here they were repulsed with considerable loss, the Milanese militia doing good service side by side with the Spaniards and the Germans. The Swiss then returned to their homes, discontented and humiliated and the French army, shortly afterwards, evacuated Lombardy, excepting the three castles of Novara, Milan, and Cremona. Genoa was stormed and pillaged by the imperialists on May 30th. A new government was set up in Milan under Francesco Sforza, though the unpaid Spanish and German soldiers recompensed themselves for their arrears by pillage and exactions. In Florence, the imperial success restored the Medici authority, which had been seriously threatened by malcontents from the Papal States, supported by hopes of French assistance. The Treaty of Windsor led to an immediate declaration of war by Henry VIII, and during the summer of 1522, the English and Spanish fleet raided the coasts of Brittany and Normandy. Later, an invading force under the Earl of Surrey and the Count Van Buren entered Picardy but little was achieved against the defensive opposition of the French. A systematic devastation of hostile country took place in this region. End of section 6